Broadcasting from the UNMC College of Nursing, get ready for RN Huddle, the podcast dedicated to bringing hot topics for and by nurses to the table. Well, hello there, and thank you so much for tuning in to RN Huddle. I'm your host, Heidi Keeler, faculty in the UNMC College of Nursing here in Omaha, Nebraska. Today, we're going to go ahead and talk about a topic that most likely affects uh, every part of your nursing practice, particularly your initial assessment, um, your medication management, etc., and that is dietary supplements. They're everywhere today. Uh, Many of them are unregulated, and there's a lot of misinformation out there. So what can nurses do to uh, address the problem and the issue of dietary supplements? So to do this, we've invited an expert to help us walk through this issue. We've invited Dr. Allie Daring-Anderson, who is a faculty at the UNMC College of Pharmacy and also a practicing pharmacist. She's joined also by Emily Tomez, who is an up-and-coming pharmacist and senior pharmacy student here at the UNMC College of Pharmacy. Dr. Ali, Emily, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, let's get right into this topic. Okay, so to start us off here, Dr. Ali, what is a dietary supplement? You know, Emily, that's a really tough question because we know what drugs are, and if we call something a dietary supplement, it's not a drug. And we know what food is, and we tend to think of supplementing your diet with food, but If we call something a dietary supplement, it cannot be food. So it's this weird compilation of products. If you look at the FDA website, it says that dietary supplements include vitamins and minerals, herbal products, amino acids, whey protein, creatine, and then weight loss products, as if that's a class all by itself. But what's really fascinating, I think, is that the FDA does not approve dietary supplements before they are sold to the public. In fact, because of the way the law is crafted, the FDA can only get involved with dietary supplements if there are a number of serious reactions or bad reported health problems. That's kind of a problem for us. So we We think that dietary supplements have been proven safe. Not true. We think that dietary supplements actually do good stuff. Sometimes true, sometimes not true. And the problem is that the whole industry, like many others, has some really, really good, high-quality products. And then it has some bad actors. And one of the interesting things that the FDA inspectors for dietary supplements tell us is that there are three categories of dietary supplements where you got to watch out for the fraud. There is fraud in those products sold for weight loss. There is fraud in those products sold for sexual enhancement. And there is fraud in those products sold for muscle growth. That doesn't necessarily mean they're dangerous. It just means that often those categories are fraught with misinformation 
and and with folks that are just trying to make a book. So rather than look at those, why don't we talk about a couple where we know a little more about it? That is, we've, we've done some science. Let's start with maybe zinc. So when looking at zinc, there's actually a couple studies that have been done, or rather a handful, looking at the typical things people come in and ask about. So I'll start with those. Um, there was actually a meta-analysis performed in 2012 that included 17 different trials that had looked at zinc usage, and it demonstrated that zinc can shorten the duration of cold symptoms in adults. However, there were no significant differences seen in children. Symptoms in adults were shortened by about one and a half days on average, but the side effects that people experienced when taking zinc didn't really outweigh the benefits of lessening the symptoms for one and a half days. So not recommended for that usage, especially in kids, since there was no data that showed it really even did anything other than cause some bad taste in the mouth and some nausea for these people. One thing to note that they did find in these trials also is that the nasal products that have zinc in them have been shown to have long-term smell loss or permanent smell loss in these patients. So not something we should be recommending to our patients ever. Wow. So if it doesn't really have any risk-benefit good news. Mm-hmm. And if I stick it in my nose, I could permanently lose my sense of smell. Right. What, what do I say to patients who want to use zinc? You could inform them of these findings that they would, one, be wasting their money on a product that really isn't going to benefit them and may actually cause some unpleasant side effects. And hopefully that's enough to help persuade these patients that it's just something we don't even really need to recommend for them to use. Oh, my goodness. I I think during cough and flu season, we actually sell lots of zinc. I didn't know that that all of these folks were sort of wasting their money. I just hope that they end up okay. Right. Exactly. Yeah, rather than just wasting their money. Definitely. Um, So, Dr. Allie, could you tell me a little bit about fish oil, too? We have a lot of patients who come in and ask about that. You know, Emily, this is one of those where... We learn something, and then we immediately screw it up. What we learned was that people who eat a lot of fish, one to four times a week, have less heart disease than people who don't. But if we look at those populations, those people walk almost everywhere. The vast majority of them drive a car less than twice a week. They have low sugar in their diet. They have low processed food in their diet. But somehow we said, oh, gosh, we don't eat fish one to four times a week. That must be the magic. Not the hard work, not the walking everywhere, not the not driving, not the no Twinkies. What we said was, wow, we're going to take this one little factoid and, and blow it up. And... What is it that's special about fish? Well, maybe it is fish oil. So let's look at fish oil as a way to cause less heart disease. I'm not sure that at its core that even makes sense, but that's sort of where we started. And when we look at the evidence of good effects from fish oil, we find out that there are very little, very little data to tell us to use fish oil, especially for cholesterol, when it's over-the-counter. There is a prescription drug that shows some benefit, but you couldn't just 
wander in and buy that. You would need a prescription. And actually, people who take fish oil capsules, it, there's little to no effect on heart disease or on the risk of dying. The only good thing we have been able to demonstrate is that it lowers very, very high triglycerides. Not the cholesterol, just the triglycerides. And that's certainly not something we would ever recommend a patient try to do by themselves. Because fish oil also has some pretty significant drug-to-drug interactions. The first one may not be a big deal. It, interact, it interacts with Orlistat. That's that weight loss drug in the over-the-counter Ally. But since Ally blocks the absorption of fats, it also blocks the absorption of oils like fish oil. So you end up with all of the bad GI effects of Ally with absolutely no benefit. Fish oil also changes clotting and interacts with those drugs. So there's an increased chance of bleeding. And it's all of them. This is not just a cytochrome P450 effect. So it will interact with aspirin and clopidogrel and warfarin and heparin and all of the the novel oral anticoagulant drugs. It, It just should not be combined. Fascinatingly, there are some folks who are allergic to this. Um, If you have a shellfish allergy, I understand that fish oil doesn't come from shellfish, but they have enough similar characteristics that people who are allergic to fish or people who are allergic to shellfish, any seafood, should not take fish oil supplements until they have talked to a doctor and probably then they wouldn't get prescribed. Taking fish oil also has some kind of nasty side effects. Not nasty in it may be fatal, but nasty in I want, I'm uncomfortable. They can make you burp and they can cause heartburn. People were so sure that this was going to be some fabulous thing that they actually tried, did studies on how to reduce belching and heartburn from fish oil And they discovered that if you freeze the capsules, it's less likely to cause a problem. But they're frozen. And often it is uncomfortable to swallow a frozen capsule. And you have to be really careful. You have to carefully separate them before you put them in the freezer. Otherwise, you have this chunk of capsules and you can't break them apart. And you can't. So if if you can't stop taking your fish oil, which I think would be pretty easy because I'm trying to save you some money. But you can always freeze it if you can find a way to to freeze it well. Interesting. So let's say I have a patient come up and asks me stuff about fish oil. What are some things that I should maybe mention to them before they leave the door? Well, I, I think the first thing that we're going to say to them is we don't really want you taking this without medical advice. You can't feel high triglycerides, so your doctor needs to be doing some blood tests. Secondly, there are some significant drug-to-drug interactions, and there are a number of people who are just uncomfortable. So when you are talking to your nurse practitioner about, is this a good idea, I suspect that most often that professional is going to say no. 
If for some reason they say, sure, that your triglycerides are really high and we're willing to give this a chance, then you absolutely need to talk to a pharmacist to be sure that we can help you avoid drug-to-drug interactions. I, I want to ask about your allergies. I also want you to have reasonable expectations. Don't expect that this is going to change your risk of heart disease because we don't have any evidence that shows that it does that. You know, we have patients who think the same thing, I think, that the decreased heart disease about taking selenium. What what do you know about selenium? So there are a few things I know. Selenium actually wears many hats when it comes to helping with biological functions in our bodies. Um, It can act as an important component of antioxidant defense, and there's some important components between the thyroid hormone production that happens in our bodies. And there's a few studies that have been shown to have to have shown that selenium levels and CD4 counts in patients with HIV actually have a relationship. And they found a linear relationship between selenium deficiency and a reduction in their CD4 counts. So there is some realness that's happening in our bodies with selenium. Some other things that have been shown in studies that um, selenium, um, people who have depleted stores in their tissues may have impaired cell-mediated immunity. And other studies have looked at patients who take selenium for thyroiditis and seeing it's actually shown to decrease some anti-inflammatory, some inflammatory effects in these patients. Um, It's been proven ineffective, however, for preventing atherosclerotic disease and improving glucose metabolism and can actually increase your risk of developing type 2 diabetes. So while it seems there's some things that it may have a helpful hand in, it can also hurt you in some ways. So There is a little bit of risk and definitely a discussion that needs to be had if a patient is considering taking selenium as a supplement for sure. There's some drug interactions that come with this. This actually is pretty similar to zinc in the same way since they both have ionic nature. Any medicines that have interactions with um, calcium products or metal products, so Tums for example, need to be separated. There's a bunch of drug classes, so the tetracycline antibiotics, the fluoroquinolone antibiotics that need to be taken into consideration if a patient is going to take selenium. Um, There's kind of a hodgepodge of things that just need to be looked at before this is considered in a patient for sure um, by any provider, especially a pharmacist, if the decision is made that this patient needs selenium. So if I think I'm low in selenium. I I don't know why I would think that, but I, I, for whatever reason, I think that. What should I say to those patients who want to boost their selenium levels? Sure. So low selenium actually isn't so much of the issue. People, you won't so much notice that. You'll notice it more when you're in too high of selenium levels. So selenium has a very narrow therapeutic window in our bodies. Um, likely if you're low, it's just going to be seen on the lab before you would notice anything. But if you're noticing these symptoms when you're taking selenium, such as nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, hair loss, nail changes, mental status changes, that can be signs of too high. So that's why it's important to not take this on your own without speaking to a provider. Um, Any of these should be taken seriously. These aren't just side effects of taking selenium. The upset stomach isn't just a, oh, medicines tend to be hard on my stomach. It can be a real issue. Um, so definitely needs to be a conversation. 
Some parts of the world actually have toxic um, levels. Selenium levels are at toxic, toxic levels in their food. However, that's not really an issue in the U.S., but these same symptoms can be seen. So definitely need to talk to your healthcare provider about it. Um, I wouldn't recommend just patients taking it on their own without any sort of guidance. Wow. I, I guess I knew, I mean, I heck, the only thing I ever learned about selenium was it was a good semiconductor for my cell phone, right? So I wasn't ever sure why people took it, but I, I didn't know that there was a, a potential problem. Thanks. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you know about CoQ10? <laughs> CoQ10 is fascinating because remember, it doesn't really do anything. It just helps everything in our bodies that do stuff sort of do them better. And and I understand that stuff is not the super scientific term that you were looking for, but it it is useful in helping our cells generate energy. It is useful in the formation of some of our enzymes. It's really hard to get too little CoQ10, but we have one class of drugs that can actually lower CoQ10 levels, and those are the statins, the drugs that we use to stop our liver from producing cholesterol. The only evidence of benefit that we really have right now is that if you are taking a statin and you have existing coronary artery disease, so not only is your cholesterol too high, but we have some other sign or symptom that you have coronary artery disease. If I give you a CoQ10 supplement, your levels of CoQ10 go up. What we don't know is does that matter? And and we think, well, certainly if I give more and I can find more in the blood, that must be an important finding. Well, the reality is we don't know if that's important or not. We do know that occasionally patients say they feel better, but at just about the same rate as patients say they feel better on placebo. So we're not sure if it's the rising level of CoQ10 or if it's just I am actively doing something, trying to feel better, and since I don't feel worse, I feel better. So we, we really don't know. We know that it gets touted for lots of things, and we have no evidence that it helps the muscle pain that goes along with statins. So whatever causes that muscle pain from the statins, it's not a change in CoQ10. Or if it's a change in CoQ10, just swallowing it doesn't make it better. It doesn't help lower your blood pressure. It does not help with Parkinson's syndromes. So of all of the claims and all of the hype, the only thing we really know is that if we supplement CoQ10 in people with coronary artery disease who are taking a statin, that their levels go up. And we don't know if that matters. On the positive side, all of this stuff we've talked about already today had some side effects that were really alarming. CoQ10 does not 
have alarming side effects. But that doesn't mean it's perfectly safe. It actually has a drug-to-drug interaction with warfarin, but it's exactly the opposite of what you would suspect. If I take CoQ10 and warfarin, I increase my risk of clots. I don't increase my risk of bleeds. I actually increase my risk of clots. So whatever disease existed that I am treating with warfarin can come back because I increase my risk of blood clots. Yikes. Yeah. Kind of frightening. It is. I know. Well, gosh. So I also wanted to ask you about one other product. Do you know anything about the product Kava? Oh, this one is actually pretty easy. Kava, and sometimes it's sold as Kava Kava, is sold as an herbal product for sleep. Nobody should take this drug ever. And I know when we started, we said dietary supplements are not drugs. This one I'm going to call a drug because I want to scare people. Kava has been known to cause liver failure to the point of death. There have been a couple of members of the drug industry who wanted to create an over-the-counter kava-based sleep product, and they all stopped their studies because, sadly, people involved in the studies died. A couple of them needed liver transplants. There is absolutely no good reason for anybody to sell this. There is certainly absolutely every reason to tell people to stop taking it immediately. Um, if, if somebody showed up at my emergency room or in my long-term care facility or at an office visit and said that they were taking kava, I'm not certain what else I could do that would benefit their life as much as saying, stop this. Do not do this. One of the things that we haven't talked much about is, do I know that what's on the label is in the bottle? And the answer, sadly, is no. Since the FDA does not approve these drugs before they are marketed, it absolutely becomes a buyer beware situation where even if we have evidence that it might help, we may or may not have evidence that what it says on the label is actually in the bottle. So my best advice for nurses or anybody else dealing with this is call the pharmacy, find out if there is danger, and often the pharmacist will be able to help you identify those companies who are performing in an ethical manner. That is, we are more likely that what it says on the label is really in the bottle with some companies than with others. Emily, this has been fun. Thank you very much. I had a good time. Me too. Thank you. You bet. Well, this has been most fascinating. Dr. Ali, Emily, thank you so much for bringing this topic to us today. It really seems like there's a a lot to learn and a lot to know, and it's our responsibility as nurses to make sure that we are staying on top of uh, what our clients and our patients are doing. So thank you for shedding light on these issues, and we hope to hear back from you soon here on RN Huddle. Thank you for listening to RN Huddle. 
To stay connected, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at UNMC CNE or check out unmc.edu slash CNE for more program information.